Hey guys, welcome to Advanced Refrigeration Podcast. Before we get started, here's a word from our sponsor. Hey, have you guys heard about the new Parker Sporlin S3C case controller? Contractors, how about a case controller with a one-day setup, access to more data, and efficient system operation for the end user? The S3C series of case controllers provides contractors and store owners automated configuration and network integration. You can maintain a precise food temperatures without supervisory control. Easily monitors to prevent product loss, and Bluetooth provides a local connection with the TechCheck mobile app. The series includes case controller display module, a valve supporting open protocol, communication via BACnet and Modbus, Sporlin's mobile app, the TechCheck, allows communication with the S3C case controller to enable proof-of-work, diagnostic, and data sharing. The S3C communicates with building automation systems and works with Sporlin's SPW series of pulse width modulation valves, also the SSR series of electronic expansion valves. Visit Sporlin.com for more information. Hi, guys. Uh, welcome to the Advanced Refrigeration Podcast. I'm Kevin Compass, your host, with uh, Brett Wetzel and our uh, special guest tonight, Mike Squires. Uh, tonight, we're going to be going over... Uh, some more advanced CO2 stuff. We're going to be going over uh, transcritical defrost, uh, going over some service-related stuff. We'll touch on some ejector stuff and uh, just go over some uh, experiences we've had and uh, I kind of bring Mike in. Mike's got a ton of CO2 experience, probably more than most guys in the U.S. have ever uh, been exposed to. So, Mike, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, how's it going? Uh, Mike Squires. Um, up uh, about, I live outside of uh, Toronto, Stony Creek, Ontario. Um, working, uh, uh, working refrigeration uh, twenty-two years or so. Um, twenty-three, I think, this year. Um, see, I've been around CO two um, since. Well, I first got interested in it within it around two thousand eight or so on the books. And, and my first hands-on was it with it was in uh, 2011 uh, with my current employer. Um, and uh, we got into the transcritical systems in 2013 and haven't looked back since then really. I've been, been rounded. It's been part of daily life ever since then. Um, the, we did uh, have the first transcritical system start up in in Ontario, um, not in Canada. There was quite a few in Canada, uh, a lot in Quebec prior to that. They've been doing, they've been, they've been leading the game in North America for sure in, in that part of the country. Um, and just been, been around the, the system, seen different changes and different evolutions with uh, um, service pr procedures, installs and different equipment and since come, things come and go with it. And, you know, if, to me now it's kind of, I, I look at it as, you know, what was new and it's kind of somewhat normalized now. It's, we're getting our hands, heads around it and it's, it's not so much of a new thing. It's just a different thing. Like, uh, you know, you'd have an evolution from single units to racks and then racks to glycol rack chillers and to regular racks and then to now we're just CO2 and CO2 systems and, and they're kind of somewhat regular now and, yeah, albeit they are a little bit more complicated and you know, a little bit of more of a learning curve and 
but I find uh, once you get over the the differences and apply what you already know elsewhere, it's you you, you can pick it up fairly quickly and look at that. So I guess that's uh, summarizes it a little bit. Awesome. Yeah, it's, uh, really appreciate you coming on. So uh, first thing I like to go over, we kind of went over uh, how the flash tank and everything operates, and we went went through like the entire operation of like a standard transcritical rack with a flash gas bypass valve and a high pressure valve. So I kind of want to go into uh, parallel compression next, and uh, could you kind of explain that parallel compression is? I mean, you guys get a lot more of that than we do. So we, we I have a few exit of parallel. Yeah, so pretty much what what you have for parallel compression, it's 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 almost like a an additional suction group. So your 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 vapor compression cycle of your compressor uh, can can run a little bit more um, run a little bit more efficient. It, it's kind of similar to a family rack or a dual temperature rack where you'd have medium temp compressors and low temp compressors. You're not going to run your whole suction header at, at minus 20 if you've got 50% of your load at plus 20. So you, you split your header and run a second suction group. So in, in um, if you had a parallel compression system with a, a booster system, you, you'd essentially have three suction groups. You'd have your, your low temp suction group. Um, you don't need to have a low temp. You can have medium only, but um, you'd have a low temp suction group sitting at minus 20 give or take, say you'd have a, a medium temp suction group uh, running at uh, uh, 20 plus 20 Fahrenheit. And you would have, you could have a, uh, a third suction group, uh, which would be, you know, upwards to 35 or 40 Fahrenheit. And that third suction group is the, uh, is your flash tank pressure pretty much. So you use a compressor suction group to maintain your, your, um, your, um, your, your, your flash tank pressure. So you get, you gain efficiencies up by running, uh, lower compression ratios on your your third suction group or your parallel suction group for the uh, um, for the flash tank. So you you gain efficiency with that instead of just pushing all your flash gas that you you need to uh, remove from your flash tank into a a plus twenty suction group. You, you're putting that into a plus forty suction group. So you you gain efficiencies there and and energy consumption. So that's where where you get that. So with uh, when you have systems um, with uh, high flash gas loads, especially when you run warmer temperatures more t throughout the year, it, it really pays off to to have the, the CFM of all that flash gas going into a, a higher suction group. So that's pretty much the basic principle of it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's basically to reduce energy costs, especially in like a higher higher ambient climate. Correct. For sure. Yeah. And we, we only have, a, I think, two parallel compression racks. I mean, they're both Carnot racks. I, I haven't seen Hill or anybody else do it yet. Yeah, they, they've, they've, had, I've seen Hill drawings with it. They, they've got, they apply it. But, you know, it's like every, every manufacturer, they'll build whatever you pretty much, if they have it down, they'll, the leaders, anyhow, like, you know, you got your, your, people that will design systems to be the most efficient. So, or, you know, I guess leaders or trailblazers in the, in the systems, like, you know, you know, if you have OEMs that just want to build something that they've proven or they have out there, which is, um, you know, the, you might have, you know, companies like that, that may stray away from the, those type of projects. But, uh, um, I, I know Hill, Hill Phoenix uh, offers that I've seen it in their brochures. Uh, 
um, LMP systems. I'm pretty sure they have them. I haven't seen an LMP one yet, but again, uh, here in, in, in Canada, our climate, it, it's, it's okay for parallel compression, but it's not the, you know, where our, you know, our, you know, our ambient year, year, year long ambient temperatures don't always, you don't always get the gain for what you have to invest to put into it out of the parallel compression system. But in, in the Southern U S I'm sure it's very common. Yeah. yeah. How, how many days a year are you guys transcritical roughly? Um, it, it's, there's never a full day ever. It's, it's, it'll never stay that long. Um, you, we get certain times where we'll, we'll get numbers of hours. We'll get an eight or 10 hour stretch during a day where we're running above, you know, we, we're, we're above 87 condensing um, or ambient temperature out. And um, usually it cools down at night and, and you get that uh, it, it, it's a relief from that. Um, so it's, I know it's, it's, you know, there's so much data out there to be had, especially if you're, you know, you're working, we, a lot of our systems use the microthermal system, which is, it's a fantastic, it, you know, it's a controller and it's a fantastic data logger. So there's so much data you can get and, and so much modeling you can do with the information you can pull out of it. You can um, pull out uh, um, just data. I, I, I recall one instance where we pulled, uh, we had a, a four compressor, four transcritical compressor system and, and uh, I did um, compressor proofs and I, it was, pr I think it was 20 minutes consecutively that there was all four compressors running and that was in a 365 day period. So <laughs> there was, you know, the, the capacity was there, you know, which, which uh, I, I would have to add that though, that system was designed for, for a dry cooler, but we had it on an ambient, uh, sorry, on a uh, adiabatic condenser. So, you know, that helped the, the design or the, we have four compressors, there's only 12 minutes a year or 20 minutes a year that they all were all on at the same particular time. And, and they were probably only at a one minute stretch per, but, uh, um, you know, that was, you know, helped by an adiabatic condenser. Um, but, uh, it, I don't really can't pull off the, 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 off my head, how much, you know, hours or time we have in, in transcritical, but, um, we, when we size that stuff, we, we, we use the, uh, I guess the ASHRAE bin data or the, 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 the data you get from, um, just, you know, from the, the history for the area that we live in. That's where you, you would, you would judge or you design how much, how much time you're, you're going to be uh, running in a transcritical mode. Yeah, before I get too far behind here and, and lose you guys totally, what, um, I had two questions. One, is there any specific equipment that has to be added to the system when you have, um, you know, multiple parallel on, on the, on the rack, on the transcritical, or is it just like a, a regular, regular conventional HFC as far as there's no other extras that you need to have? Well, you're going to run, you're still going to have your standard bypass feature. So you're going to still, um, from what I've seen, the systems I've seen, you're still going to use your flash gas bypass into your medium temp suction group. But, uh, uh, you're you're gonna want to have the the programming for that not to fight with the with the with the uh, with the parallel group. So you know as a bypass for that, and and also with that in in for the some of the parallel systems we have in the winter, um, I guess November on it's it's pretty much the parallel compressor compressor section is almost shut down. 
it's just not not in use you can you can almost winterize that system which is it, it's tough to have a system with a compressor idle for so long because we all know the the service challenges that has but uh mm. um that it's another reason why the parallel compression isn't the always the best opportunity up here for for year round because you know we we have to design for minus 20 to you know 110 here so it's we have probably similar to what kevin deals with in in his area that the the span from the ultimate lows the ultimate highs can be pretty pretty tough which is it's 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 hard on refer, refrigeration design so uh, uh as far as additional equipment it's 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 really a second suction group and and like anything with the suction group um if it's multiple compressors or if it's a single compressor, you'll want to have tighter control. You you really want to have really good control, like whether it's a VFD or uh, with digital operation. Um, now, digital digital type, um, you know, unloading of, of cylinder heads is it's out there um, right now for I know Bitzer has it. I'm not sure if Copeland has it and I'm not sure even if they have UL on it now or if it's released, but uh, I haven't seen it uh, in the field yet, but uh, VFDs for sure. Um, we've seen that on and on the parallel compression side. Uh, it's it's almost uh, mandatory because it's you can imagine you're not going to you know cycle a twenty horse compressor on and off to maintain a receiver pressure. It'll just be you know that's kind of it's kind of silly, but uh, well, you're going to uh, very very airflow. That's the other thing that I mean you need to be able to keep that receiver pressure like steady, steady. Um, like the, with the flash gas bypass valve, every every CO two rack that I've ever seen had tons of issues. Has usually ends up having the first issues that on steady receiver pressure, like going from what I don't know more than ten pounds. I would say is kind of excessive. You know, swing on the receiver. I mean, I, I've seen some racks where they swing like 85, 90 pounds. That, that's in the flash gas bypass valve. I've never seen one that swung that much on a. Uh, parallel compression rack. I mean, we only have two of them and they're way up north. So, and we only run a parallel compression when it's like 80 plus degrees outside. Mm -hmm. But I mean, what, what would you say like the average swing is on a receiver if you had to look at it like on a, with a parallel compression? Is it, is it just as tight or is it? Uh, yeah, not? well, yeah, it's pretty good from, um, well, I've seen one that we do have one I, I did see that didn't even have a VFD and it was almost to the point where he was that system. I'm trying to think. Yeah. I think we actually, I think we botched the parallel compression on that and, and ran, ran, opened the third compressor up and, and ran it all as one suction group because it, the, you couldn't maintain with it just straight on off control. It wasn't possible to get a, a good, a good, a, a good pressure control on that receiver. Um, so we basically eliminated the parallel control on that parallel compression on that and kept only the two suction groups. Um, other systems with the uh, with the parallel compression and the VFD, uh, you know, it's it's in there. It's it's it ramps up and down, and it it you know it keeps you in a 10, 20, 10, You know, it it depends on the once that you get the. Once the, the, the suction pressure is on there, the VFD, it gets on there and it ramps up, up and down. And it's, uh, it maintains a, a little bit of a, um, a, it, it, okay, I'm, I'm just <laughs> stepping on my tongue here. Um, when the flash gas load was higher, it maintained a lot better than when the flash gas load was lower, if that makes sense. Because, well, when, the, when there's a lot of CFM coming off that 
receiver, the VFD was able to keep it tighter because the, the compressor itself is, it was a, still, it was a big, I think it was a four HTC 20 bitzer, which is, you know, can move a lot of gas. And, uh, once it, once it gets to the borderline, it's, it's kind of, you know, is working on with the, the, the VFD going down and then coming up, it was, it was chasing it a bit, but again, it, like everything like that, it, it's all into the time of the tuning and, uh, um, getting it to, to fight to, to work well together. So in the summer, the, when, when it's there and it's needed, it, it, it holds it pretty tight. Yeah. That's basically the, the more time you put into tuning these systems, the better, the better results you're going to see out of them. Yeah. Um, well, I guess we move on now to, uh, we'll move on to high cast defrost and, uh, kind of go over that. So I've seen a couple different, uh, ways of, of doing this i've seen uh kind of like how carno does it at a low temp it's i guess you would call it cool or latent gas it'd be like a latent gas defrost and then on a low temp would be kind of it below freezing high gas defrost is, is that kind of how kind of how you would explain it well see the thing is with hot gas and, and the co2 is kind of tricky because you're dealing with the, your pressures or your enemies. Uh, if you if 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 you had no holds barred with your pressure, like we, we you know we've got I know I know you've got one, Kevin. We've got a couple up here. Actually, no, there's no hot gas in that one. But if you have a fully like a 90 bar rated system where you can run normal pressures or whatever whatever pressures you have, um, but uh, in a in typical supermarket application, the cases and and your a lot of your piping, pretty much everything outside the rack room is um um not uh not high pressure if it's either a 600 psi max operating or a 650 psi so if you if you look at even the max operating pressure your saturated temperatures are not far above freezing um i i think freezing is a zero fahrenheit is 550 or 520 i think i can't remember off the head top of my head but uh um where is it? I had it here. Fahrenheit. Thirty-two psi. Thirty-two. Four hundred and ninety pounds is is freezing. So, Real you know, <laughs> what 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 we're used to with HFC hot gas defrost is you know your saturated temperature of your your hot gas or cool gas is. The, the TD from melting ice to that gas pressure is so, you know, it's huge. You've got a lot of BTUs to move there. So um, with the with the gas defrost and CO2, uh, you're so close to freezing with saturated. So you got to use a lot of sensible heat. And then you can't rely as much on latent heat um, because you don't have the, the temperature difference there. And when, when you're working with sensible heat, you got to you got to move a lot of move a lot of gas. And when you got to move a lot of gas, you got to worry about pressure drops. And uh, um, so with, uh, you know, there's a few hot gas systems. Uh, our, our first transcritical system, I, I think, would have been the one of the, or if not the first one that Hill Phoenix tried um, over here in in, in North America um, back in 2013. And, and that um, takes um, um, tr uh, hot gas from the low temp compressors and 
pushes it down the suction leg in, in a reverse manner. It, it, it bumps up the pressure um, with a, a defrost differential regulator, and it comes off in it's kind of a normal hot gas fashion and, and puts it down the uh, the um, the suction lines. And uh, you know, you're getting close to you're you're getting at or over 500 psi, um, or well, well over 500 psi um, for for gas pressures and. Uh, closer to 600 psi to to put that hot gas down the down the um, suction line so you got uh your 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 a few degrees 10 less less than 20 degrees difference between freezing and so the hottest it can be saturated would be 20 degrees fahrenheit i guess no sorry um 40 40 degrees 40 or 50 and um so you, you you're relying a lot on your sensible and and the speed of that gas moving so uh um it, it's not the quite quite the same effect you get all the time with with your hot gas um it's a little bit closer with the with i know with the with the um with the the hill phoenix model that that we see with the the reverse flow and coming off the, the low temp suction we've had we've had good luck and good experience with that um uh, after some some trials and that but i i guess the the main point is that the uh the what you know and feel and are used to with hfc systems and hot gas defrost is not not exactly the same as um um as uh from co2 to to uh, hfc systems and, and it goes all down the line when it comes to piping of cases and lineups and defrost times defrost termination times they're 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 all going to be different so that's uh that's that's an area of difference yeah i've um, seen the defrost termination thing like it's 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 taken a lot longer on uh uh you know for for term temps I, it, it's been kind of like a you know trial and error for uh term temps because it's been obviously longer i yeah. i haven't seen that hill phoenix style like most most of the stuff i've seen with hot gas has been carnot and mm -hmm. it's been, uh it's been counterflow it's been through the liquid line Mm -hmm. and then push back through the suction yeah the the source of that hawk acid would be the same as would it be on, on the hill phoenix i'm i'm system i'm talking about that pressures are typically lower um depending on the system design of whichever rack you're working on so if some could be lower than others but uh um with that not with that system it's it's more more to do with speed and sensible heat so um th that system works well also it's there's a lot of other systems that can give you give you problems with that and it has to do with restriction of flow because where you're dealing with the sensible heat you need the flow so uh you you can't have high pressure drops in your system whether it's through a distributor or through a dryer or a solenoid um the expansion valve um so with with, with that system you, they take the hot gas off the low temperature compressor discharge um they send it down the liquid line they close a the liquid line solenoid send it down the liquid line to the case the expansion valve opens to 100 percent um typically the the well they have to be the the expansion valves are, are well oversized for the refrigeration load the expansion valves are sized for uh, the defrost flow uh, to maximize defrost flow into the case and it goes into the evaporator through the tx valve and back um 
to the uh, to the suction header. Um, the suction the suction line stops, and there's a return a return path uh, flow to the uh, flash tank uh, with that gas. And and if if you don't have a pressure drop and all your piping sizes are are okay, that that system works well. Um, again, uh, we we've got a lot of those systems out there, and they've been working for once you. Once the setup and they're tuned in, they they work good. We've got a bunch of those going since I think our first one of those was in 2015. So that's uh, that's uh, they they work they work well once they set up. But it's when you're when you start dealing with bigger cases or, or evaporators with distributors, you know you run into uh, yeah, they run into uh, run into problems with that. You know, for example, if you have a, a 12 foot island case that like a Hussman 12 foot island case, if it would have three evaporators, you know, would work, could work better than one that would have one large evaporator because you probably got a distributor and a few passes with a, a 12 foot evaporator. Um, so that, the, that kind of stuff, when you increase the pressure drop on your hot gas flow through it, it, it restricts the, uh, it restricts the, um, the flow of the, uh, uh, the gas. So yeah, the frost. I've definitely seen on the larger coils. It, 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 I mean, they typically, especially in the wintertime, they typically run the full length defrost, no termination. I mean, they, and they barely hit term. But I mean, mm. other than that, the cases and other stuff, I mean, with with that style defrost seem to work great. Yeah. I mean, so what, one, one of the other positives with that type of a system where you, you have – your your expansion valve you can actually set them up and tune them as as you would a balancing valve in a glycol system um which it it, it gives you a little bit of power to uh manipulate the system uh for example if you have a lineup of six cases on on one system and and one case is further than the other one one just say one case is 10 feet or in a 20 on 30 feet on the other side of the store which is not the best but we know what happens um, you can actually adjust all your all your um, EEVs to open at a percentage that you want. In this is with a, a microthermal controller now. They 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 have that in there. So if you, when the each case controller goes into gets a defrost single goes signal and goes into defrost, you could set case A, B, and C at eighty percent open. You can set case D and E at ninety percent open and 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 uh, uh, case F at 100% open. So basically, you can balance your your hot gas flow through the uh, through the hot, through the expansion valves, which is that's a pretty good pretty good thing to do. With uh, we're trying to to balance the gas flow through that circuit, and if, if you're getting into tuning that kind of defrost, it, it works quite well, assuming all you're getting a good uh, flow through flow through everything, right? So it. Is there a certain way what like what are you actually editing like obviously controlling superheat when it's in refrigeration but like when it's not gas what do you what are you actually editing what parameters are are you trying to maintain well this this is um, microthermal has been um, working with CO two for a long time um, you know it it goes without saying a lot of the uh, North American design refrigerated CO two systems you know are from Quebec Canada and and uh, you know microthermal has a, Big presence out there as well. It's there where we're, it's it's local for a lot of people um, with Parker and uh, uh, Microthermal out there. So they've been designing these systems since the beginning. And when the setup parameters in the case controller for CO2 application, it's 
basically an application there where you, you just basically have a setup tab. It's it's if you're familiar with Microthermal when they have their plugins and control setups, it's you 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 just give set points to the app to the control points that they provide you and and one of those would be uh, defrost opening position. Um, you, so you can either, it can be open 100% in defrost like you would on a kernel system, closed 100% in defrost like you would on a Hill Phoenix system. And if it were on a kernel system, you could have it open at open during defrost and at 80%. You, you, you have uh, just one value to place it there to wherever you want it, want it to go. So it, it kind of, it uses that EEV as a dual purpose uh, position, like, like just the same thing as a, you know, fixed orifice or not, sorry, an adjustable orifice balancing valve like you would in a glycol case you know when uh, from the, the setups on the glycol systems where you you get your balance adjust your balancing valves to slow down solenoids if you had the both uh, from from cycling too much so um it, or any hydronic system for that matter but uh, that's one of the big uh, positives of, of a forward flow system through the ex expansion valve is there a, is there a certain um, differential you're looking for when you're tweaking something like that uh, well, you don't really, you, you're not really measuring a differential there because you don't have the access points or probably a tool accurate enough to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, so you, you kinda, you, you, this would be something I, I've done it. Um, you know, when I'm dealing with issues, you, you make a little adjustment here and you're, you're watching defrost duration times, how long it takes you to get determination. So if you, um, like if you have a case in your lineup, that's getting determination, you know, 10 minutes before otherwise you can there's no problem choking that case off because you know it's getting more than its fair share of the natural uh, the hot gas so you can uh, squeeze it down a bit and you know a little from the rich and give it to the poor you know so you're basically just trying to balance you're, you're tweaking it based off the balance of the hot gas not yeah no other numbers but just trying no. to it not, not, not from my experiences that's that's how i see it it's just you you go with what you got and you you got a lot of you got two to three temperature sensors and, and a pressure transducer for every case controller. And, and you, you see what you have on the rack and, and, it, uh, and it all comes together. Your system termination is an and, and you, you can, you can terminate the cases individually. Actually they'll, if the case will, if one case reaches termination, it, the valve will close. So then therefore no more hot gas is used in that case. I'm pretty, yeah, I'm pretty sure that works that way. Um, and uh, you can you can run it that way, so it, it just helps you balance the defrost flow. Yeah, the the one of the last uh, stores I started up had uh, it was the, it was the first time I've seen this defrost design. Uh, it was a, it was a, it was a rack manufacturer. That it was the newer design for them, so they were taking uh, hot gas from the TC side. And they were using a uh, CCM valve to control the pressure on the other side of the CCM valve for the defrost header to roughly 600 pounds. Mm -hmm. and and, uh, controlling it in or controlling it out or both? Controlling it out. So they were controlling the actual defrost header to 600 PSI. And then they were going in the suction line. They would shut the... Uh, they would shut the EEPRs, uh, they would go in the suction line, and then they would go re reverse flow through the coils. Now, in this, this system, I, I am not a fan of because it has the check valves in there. And, I mean, me and you talked about it, Michael, the uh, 
the massive amount of check valve failures we had, but mm-hmm. um, it would it would go through the coil like a like a standard defrost, go through the check valve, and then back into the uh, into the uh, flash tank. Mm-hmm. So yeah. No, I, I know the system you're talking about as well, and I think the uh, the check valve issue is not uh, a system issue for that for that one. So I, I I think I don't think if you if you have any deterrence of that system, it's more towards that that choice or design of check valve because I know that that exact system. Um, I can't one two two three. Actually, we have a rack rack at the shop now that's coming. We've got a few systems out there with that exact system with a different. The equipment that is equipped with the check valves for the reverse flow um, is a different manufacturer than the one you were dealing with, and we've had little to no failures as far as that. So that the system may, I'm not sure if the exact system that you're dealing with is the same one I am, but it, it regulates it, it regulates a hot gas header by regulating pressure in and out. Um, there, there's two regulators there, one mechanical, I believe, and one one electronic, but it, it again, it, it's doing the same purpose. It's making, taking the abundance of, of, of high pressure and hotter um, discharge gas off the TC side and putting and forming it or holding, keeping it in a, a hot gas header for supply down the lines. And when it goes down there, it's, you, you usually have not a lot of problems with volume and, and temperature is pretty good. Um, so those, uh, uh, the check valve issue, I think that's a, uh, that's maybe isolated to one choice of design or, or whatever that's in there. But uh, that, that type of system I've seen a few times and it, it works quite well as well. Um, then, then the hot gas off the low temp discharge. Um, Cause again, the, the, this is again in a system that's running with, you know, the, the line sets and the equipment outside the machine room is all pretty much standard, standard refrigeration equipment and parts, not, not high pressure CO2 stuff, but which typically I, I say 45 bar and under, which is, you know, the, everything now is most things now in normal refrigeration is 45 bar. And that started with when 410A came out, you know, 15, 20 years ago, whatever they, they upped the pressures from the old uh, R12 and 502 days um, on everything. So most, most uh, standard refrigeration components are, are rated at 45 bar now, typically uh, some are a lot less, but uh Typically, that's where they are, and and when you're when you have those limitations, you you're uh, you got to keep that those pressures down, and 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 that system works well. And there are a few manufacturers doing systems like that, um, and you know that's it's with that stuff that there's various patents and various systems working with that, and they're 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 coming together with it, and it's you know they're making making good changes for the system to get the get the defrost working. working yeah. Better. Finally, I think after 18 failed check valves, we uh, convinced them to put in uh, four bolts. Oh yeah, and uh, I don't think we've had we've had an, uh, a coil a coil uh, check valve failure yet. That's good. Yeah, it was uh, th- th- those stainless check valves were uh, not a great choice for that. <laughs> hmm. I, I mean, they, they were just they were just too short, and I mean, the welders were just destroying them every time they were putting yeah, them in. I can see that as well. I've seen a few check valves in discharge, stainless check valves in, uh, were they stainless or were they, yeah, stainless check valves in discharge lines on TC sides fail. Quite a few actually. And maybe the same manufacturer of those ones you're talking about. I'm not sure, but uh, uh, I've, I've seen those those fail again. And again, 
you know, it's like, I, did they die or were they murdered? Right. It's always the question, you know, what you say in that. So if you're, you know, if you abuse any equipment, it's, you know, it's, you, know, you give a manufacturer a piece of equipment, a bad name, but you know, it, it, if it's seeing too hot of a temperature during the installation process or the welding or the take welding or however it's done, it's, you're not giving it a fighting chance to work. So. I mean, some of those coils, I mean, there's, I mean, I'll give those guys props. There's not very much room to work in there and let alone changing it out in the freezer and take well the new, new uh, take well the new uh, check valve in. I mean, I don't envy those guys. That, that, that's pretty tight in there. Yeah. Hey, well, that system probably is all, it's probably under 45. They could have, they could have transitioned to, if they had the right couplings, they could have went to copper and regular fittings probably because I'm sure exactly. it's not a 90 bar system. So. But well, that's, that's exactly what happened. Part of me. That's exactly what ended up happening. Oh, we ended okay, yeah, up gotcha. putting it to copper, and then we ended up putting uh, the silver soldering uh, joints mm -hmm. on it, putting uh, brass four bolt revealable check valves in. But yeah, that, that system seemed to work pretty good. I mean, it took a, it took a little while to get the uh, the stepper the CCM valve that was stepping down the hot gas pressure. It seemed like it took a long time to get that tuned in. Um, but once it was once it was tuned in, it worked real good. Mm -hmm. I, I find in, in you know I, I like uh, the electronics and the valves and all that, but I find when it comes to something very critical and and very quick, it would expand. I'm I'm I move. I like spring actuated pressure regulators. It's just uh, by the time you're you're communicating sensors and signals and turning a motor to the point where a spring can react, it's you know, milliseconds, you, you know, pressure, mechanical pressure re regulators really, really do well in those applications. 100% agree with that. Like, I would much rather have a mechanical regulator in that application than a uh, stepper. I mean, there's just, there's just less, less to go wrong, less error. See, in, in our design that we had, there was a, um, was it a 750 pound relief on there? It was, it was oh, wow. real close. So I mean, it was in the beginning. It was chirping its relief every every time we go into hot gas. I mean, it would chirp the relief, chirp the relief. We ended up having to, you know, when something going to hot gas, they put the valve opening to like uh, step it open like uh, like one percent, two percent, just to keep it from you know reacting too fast and uh, chirping the relief. We and unfortunately, there was no way to valve it off without pumping down the whole rack because they had those new wonderful. Uh, ball valves with the check valves in them and they were all checking backwards well all the suction lines were checking backwards into the uh into the defrost header from that uh that with no way to valve it off <laughs> that, that makes it too much fun yeah it's uh it's been a bit of a ride with that so the last uh defrost that i kind of want to go over is uh which is the 90 bar system which i only i've only seen one and it's at that uh pizza joint that uh I told you about we built a couple of years ago and mm -hmm. that system is it's full on tc hot gas and i mean it works great mm -hmm. like we we have two coils in that place that are the size of uh connex boxes stacked on top of each other and it'll do both of them at the same time and i mean the defrost is less than 15 minutes yeah well with that's your you're getting back into the normal the territory of normal hot gas when you start doing that so you get you get uh you get your volume and temperature and you're not limited on pressure. So you can really just blast it like you would on, on, uh, on just certain HFC systems of what we're used to with the, for the past 
what, 30 or 40 years or however long that causes how gas has been around. So that uh, brings it back to a little bit normal. Where, so, uh, what, what differential are you trying to maintain? Like when you were doing full on hot gas on the TCC. Hey guys, I want to take a break and talk about Westermeyer, one of our other sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Westermeyer Industries, the leader in oil management and pressure vessels for the commercial refrigeration industry. I'd I, I wouldn't I don't think any of ours have that right now. The one the one full bar system. Um the one full system that I know is it's all electric, I believe. Or no, it's it's all medium. There's no freezers in that site. Okay. Have to look look at that again. So the the Mama Rosa's pizza place, uh, it it has a, a floating actuator, and I believe it's trying to maintain anywhere from fifty to seventy five pounds of differential on the TC side, and then it goes back through defrost, and then there's a discrete line coming back. There's a header with a discrete header with uh, the vapors coming back down, and then it dumps in back on the other side of the valve to uh, dump it back in the uh, gas cooler. Okay. That, that, that's that's probably, that sounds a little bit familiar, similar to how um, I see a lot of uh, some heat reclaim on CO2 racks work, which is it's heat reclaim on, on many CO2 racks is, is uh, a little bit unique too because you don't usually have the volume in your heat reclaim coils uh, as, as you would in an HFC system. Usually the, uh, the piping is a lot smaller, so you have to balance your flow. You have to do a bypass as opposed to a full flow. Like an HFC rack, you'll, you know, two-in-one-H discharge. You put your two-in-one-H discharge right into your hot water recovery tanks or you put it right into your air handler coil, the whole shot. Uh, but with the CO2 systems, you know, if you've got a two-inch discharge up to your gas cool, you're not typically you're not running. Uh, well, actually, no, we have a couple where we we ran full flow uh, discharge up to the uh, heat reclaim, but um, a lot of times um, you get uh, probably three-quarter inch lines going to various stages of heat reclaim. Um, so that's uh, it's probably similar to the system you're you're talking about. You you're basically f um, using a a ball valve to basically balance the flow through uh by use a controller to balance the flow to maintain a differential but also uh not over pressure your discharge yeah that's uh kind of how they're doing the i mean we only have one store down here they're using uh like all they use is uh heat reclaim with co2 and that that's how they're doing it they're they're balancing the flow and then but it, it's full-size piping going back and forth, but they're balancing the flow still with a bleem valve. Mm -hmm. But yeah, uh, up here so far, they're the only ones I've ever seen do heat reclaim. I mean, it's kind of like, like in the city of Chicago, you're not even allowed to have the, uh, you know, standard HFC heat reclaim. So I, I don't, I don't see them uh, letting us have uh, a <laughs> CO2 heat reclaim. Oh, you don't have that? No? no we're not even allowed to, in the city of Chicago or like the surrounding areas, if you want to run heat reclaim on a rack, you have to have a coil that has double the operational pressure uh, than of the design refrigerant pressure. So they, they make it so it's almost it's it's so expensive to install that nobody does it anymore. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, but CO two heat reclaim works pretty good. I mean, you're getting a, you're getting a ton of heat off that. Mm -hmm. um, if you're uh, 
if your superheats in check though that's where you gotta you gotta make sure you're getting that so yeah you know your your tc superheat right so that's that's the other thing with the with the uh the, the tuning of these racks you know you gotta if you're you know you remember your 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 transcritical suction load is a big part of a saturated gas load uh, albeit it's a warmer temperature it's but it's still near saturated gas so uh there's not a lot of superheat there and then your uh uh, you do get some superheat from your if you're a booster system from your low temp, and then your your suction your circuit suction lines are probably lower superheat because they're all pretty much all electronically valve controlled. So your uh, your discharge your suction superheat is can be can it can be low sometimes lower than normal. And if you you know you, you know a discharge when you got low suction superheat, how how much discharge? superheat you have or how much your discharge temperature is, is affected by that you can have uh you know I, i've i've seen racks where you can put your hand on the put your hand on the uh, discharge line and it seems colder than the you know it's colder <laughs> than a lot of things around the system so that's the discharge of a transcritical so are you looking for about a uh, what maybe 80 degrees of superheat on the co2 side on the discharge side um, well, I think you take, I don't, I think you're, I don't know if you're looking for a minimum, you're, you're looking for whatever you can get. You, it's, it's really your, your discharge temperature isn't your target. It's your, your, your suction temperature is your target, uh, is what you're maintaining and, and, you know, maintaining a good and a safe suction temperature is what's going to give you your, your, your discharge, discharge temperature, like, like any vapor compression system, it's kind of, you want to, you want to maintain good suction superheat for for compressor cooling for oil viscosity and then for you don't want it too high and you don't want it too low you want it just about right and then when it's just about right you gotta you'll get your calculated uh your your discharge temperature you'll you'll be able to you know you you'll get it out of there but you know uh, a poorly run system is going to be hot as anything great for heat but mm-hmm. not good for valves and oil and efficiency and all that but it's darn warm. <laughs> so yeah, it, it, it seems like when you get about like 10 degrees superheat return, like, it, I mean, it seems like that oil starts moving like no other. It starts mixing with the CO2. Uh, well, that's it, right? Yeah. I mean, then, then, then starts your oil problems. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it seems you get a really controlled that re- return gas temp. You really keep an eye on that. It seems like, especially when you start with microthermal, you start seeing more oil pulses. I mean, Usually, once you start seeing that, I mean, usually some liquid floodbacks behind there too. It seems like. Mm-hmm. Well, that's always a good thing with, um, well, like, well, the industry is caught up now with um, with the oil systems on the compressor. I just switching gears to get a bit over to the oil system on the compressors. Uh, you know, the original systems, you know, they were pretty much homemade solenoids and 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 level switches. You know, basically homemade tracks oils, if you will. Um, for that because the equipment wasn't there now the the manufacturers whether the the emerson trax oils or the emerson omb lines or the the crewan lines they uh they they do it all all incorporated now of, of what you have with the an electronic oil fill but uh um seeing the, the the when you get when you have visibility of of the the oil pulses and the oil level it, it really it's a really good tool for when it comes to diagnosing um um, oil problems like you, like you wouldn't have on a, on a rack with 
a, an HFC rack with, uh, you know, oil pots or, you know, just standard oil level controls and OMBs or Trex oils and that. You, you don't know what's going on. You don't know when oil's coming in. You don't know when the compressor's up and down. But when when you have these these systems on uh, the older system, which it's unfortunately they're kind of going away now, but because uh, the, the, we're going back to the standard components. But uh, um, when you get to see that, it's it's just uh, more data you can use as a, as a technician to diagnose issues. Yeah, I mean, I love the new setup with the with the OMBs and the uh, Prevons. I really wish that they would incorporate like a a dry contact closure. To, you know, say when it's when oil's on, when oil's off. That way, it can be tied into the EMS system. I mean, because like you said, that is a great tool. So, what would you say is a high pulse count? So, like on, on a daily. For a compressor, like a, say like a low temp compressor, what would you say a, a, a high false count to you would be? Um, I know it's really it, dependent on the ambient, the system, and everything else. Yeah, well, yeah, it depends on the runtime of the compressor, really, right? So, um, and also with that, it depends on the solenoid and the orifice of how much oil is getting in there, and 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 it's kind of I'm just trying to think about that now. Um, usually when it comes to those type of questions, I don't typically run them as a rule of thumb because I, I find a lot of sites are different. And I generally would just compare history. Like if, if I were to look at a, a compressor and it was, if this is what it was doing this time last week, last month, and the month before that, and now starting two weeks ago, it started doubling the amount of pulses that I, I typically use that as a, as a comparison. Um, and 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 again um the pulse count for um for those you know it it can show you if you got a pumper or you got some valve plates or some re recompression in there or um you know even even the opposite you got uh, um you can have a, a pulse count or um um you, you can have um I'm trying to think of it now um too much uh too many pulses, which could, uh, you know, even point as a bad relay because it's a solenoid and a relay for those systems. So, you know, they're small solid state relays. So those solid state relays sometimes give up the ghost and they, they pulse more than on the computer than they're physically actually doing. So that's always, you know, a, a key pointer to, to look at as well. So um, they, they do. I, I didn't really answer the question, but uh, um, as far as, you know, a pulse count, I, I, can't really say I, I'd even look or consider that as as a, a rule of thumb type thing. I, I generally look at it as a system of history and, and judge it based on the past of how it operated before and what the compressors next to it and along alongside it are doing. It just basically use comparisons from from what's on site. So yeah, I agree with that. I mean, uh, I mean, especially if you got the data. I mean, that's the nice thing about microthermals having the data. I mean, some of the other manufacturers where we only get a you know week's worth of data, it's not the greatest. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the 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 OMBs have definitely been like a step up. Mm -hmm. I, I tend to like the Crevon ones more because at least you can get in there with an app and you you can Bluetooth to them and see like uh, how many pulses they are doing. Mm -hmm. That that seems to be working pretty good. If you guys yeah. have any of those out there yet? Yeah, we have some of those, and and they're actually um, they're they're pretty slick too because you can you can adjust them 
based on your oil pressure. So if you, you know, if you have a higher pressure oil pressure system, you can actually, you can tune them. You can actually tune your oil fill valve just to, to have your, you can time how long your pulse width is going to be for your solenoid. And, and, and you can tune that valve depending on of, of how much or how quick or how slow you want it to pulse the oil in there. You don't want it to go in too fast for, for, you don't want turbulence in there. You don't want foam or, and you can, uh, you can change, you can increase and, and shorten your, uh, your um uh your pulse went your pulse width and your your control settings for that and and when it comes into that you know the the, the manufacturers of that part they, they, they've got it they they're they're a good resource for for what what they can tell you they they can help you when it comes to that as far as looking at uh what type of system you have or where they think you you should start or, or where it would be um typically if you have those parts right out of the box put them on you're, you're going to want to tune them to where they need to be or, or where the old one was um, as a starting point, because what it, what it is out of the box may not be suitable for for your CO two application, or or it may be depends on on the the actual um, settings of that uh, that actual crew on control. Yeah. Uh, now, how have you guys? I mean, I've seen a couple of different kind of drain systems. So, like uh, up here, like obviously Hill Phoenix does. Uh, they do a level switch in the solenoid. And that's how they drain their separator and they, you know, pulse the levels or when the level switch comes up, they pulse the solenoid on. And then I've also seen how LMP does it. They do like a constant drain. So they have a pressure regulator. They set it like slightly higher than the uh, uh, suction pressure and they're just constantly venting it off through their oil reservoir and then through the oil reservoir into the uh, flash tank. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, have you guys seen anything else? Yeah. I, well, then there's the other one where, where you just basically have uh, the higher pressure systems um, where you see them a lot with Carnot, where you'll have uh, um, basically your separator and reservoir, your separator is your reservoir, and then your your oil fill solenoids are piped straight off of that from high pressure. So you, you your, your, your oil injection your oil going into your compressor is coming in at TC pressure or oil to your solenoid valve or to your inlet valve is actually at your, on the, from the discharge pressure coming in. So that's, that's the, the other one, which is probably on a couple of the systems you've seen as well. Um, yeah. Whether it's to a, a solenoid or if it's into a, uh, uh, like a, a, a Traxwell uh, solenoid level control. Yeah, last two stores I started up had that, and uh, it, it works. I'm just not a fan of it not having side glasses on the uh, oil reservoir. <laughs> yeah, you know what? It's it's a challenge, and and you know, working on the, those systems, it's the the last thing you want to do is add oil to there. If you don't know where the oil went, don't add oil. Or if you add oil to get it going, just probably plan on taking it out sooner than later because you know, yeah, sometimes you ha you have to get oil to get things going, but you know, typically in these systems, the oil doesn't evaporate. It's going somewhere or it's lost somewhere. So uh, uh, with a not not so service friendly system like that where you can't see it, uh, the only way I've, you know, you can really analyze things with oil pulses and this and that. But again, that's not, you know, you could spend hours or days deciphering data to see what where you think the oil is or look at it with the sight glass and if, if you don't have that which we're, we're used to in a lot of systems you can uh, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble with uh with the oil adding or subtracting oil from a system like that 
Yeah, we uh, found ourselves in that very spot. We had uh, that. I mean, I think I talked to you about it. That rack where uh, they had us keep adding on startup, adding and adding and adding, and I ended up like eight gallons above every other rack, and uh, it was uh, stuck in the accumulator. Yeah, yeah I've like, seen that as well. Yeah, that was. Uh, we're still dealing with that. It's uh it's it was sticking in the accumulator because the the dip tube had plugged up. Mm-hmm. That's what it was. It was designed with the dip tube. It just didn't have the hole, or it, the hole just plugged up. Allegedly, no. Or it could have been too nobody, big or something like that. It's it's hard to say. A clear answer whether it has a dip tube or whether it was a weep hole. They they. they I'd be willing to bet it's the weep hole at the bottom of the inverted trap suction line comes in and goes up to the top, goes down to the bottom, up to the top and the gas comes in here and it has your standard weep hole at the bottom of the uh, 90 or the, the elbow or you, you bend at the bottom and goes there. So is it more, is it more susceptible to CO2 because of all the slag because of all the welds? Well, that's, I, that's definitely a, a, definitely a sore point in some of these systems is the amount of debris that can get in there and it's not very friendly with uh with systems so that 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 could be a possibility for sure yeah usually on startup the first liquid suction dryers are pretty rough yeah so on industrial systems we use a lot of uh strainers like actual you know removable strainers and i mean like obviously you guys are dealing with a whole lot of higher pressure but I mean, they, they do make, you know, obviously, you know, like Hansen, Hansen makes valves for, you know, CO2 and ammonia. There, there's no serviceable strainers that they could be put in place, uh, you know, the, of these devices to make sure, like, you know, especially in the suction coming back, right? You'd think it, it would, it would get caught by the suction filter dryers unless there's not any, you know, on these, on the, I forget what manufacturer you said. I don't remember Carnot. Um, yeah, that's that's one of them. But the the, the serviceable serviceable strainers are are there. I I the, the I know the first Hill Phoenix system we have has one in the uh, the drain leg from the condenser. Um, there's basically a you know the the Y type bolt fitting service strainer that it's standard and well that that type of fitting that you'd see in in many systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and also a spot you know you got your obviously you got your your suction core or liquid core filters and then. Another spot, which is um, um, uh, where there's a strainer, is in the, in the, uh, the high pressure valve from the gas cooler to the receiver. That's depending on the valve you have there, whether it's a, it's an ICMTS valve or a CCMT or a, a Parker Sporlin F, uh, HPV, I believe they call them. They, uh, they have serviceable strainers in them, and and they're they're a pretty good spot. Um, typically, they're easy to service. I know on a on a Carnot they are. Um, uh, a couple others they're they're relatively you know service friendly like you can you can almost take that apart and put it back together rather than quicker than you can do a lot of things on an hfc rack so um that's a, that's a you know a, a good spot for just like in a tx valve you know big when you when you have pressure differentials um it's always a good spot for picking up stuff just like your TXV strainer. So that, that strainer that's on the high pressure valve is usually a great spot for getting that stuff or at least rolling into a preventative maintenance plan for, for uh, checking 
checking systems when you when you when you have time uh, as a as a just maintenance because it's if, if depending on how much what's in your system you're, you're probably definitely going to have something there yeah the last two that i've seen with like plugged up high pressure valves i i noticed like i i've been wa- i was watching the trends and you could see like they would start the valve percentage opens would start creeping up and mm-hmm. i mean flash tank pressure would stay kind of low or steady but like head pressure and uh the valve percentages were like cranked way up. Like it may have been like 40% last year at this time. It was now 70 to 80%. Mm-hmm. And Which to- totally makes sense. You're basically got an 80 ton valve and you're with all the crap in there. Now it's a 40 ton valve. So, mm-hmm. you know, you would, you would get it like that. So. Yeah. That, that's one thing I like to look at on PMs. Like I like to be able to graph that out and uh, see what it was last year at that time. I mean, just, just to make sure you're not plugging up and, uh, having that issue do the i never pulled one apart but do the ccmt valves have uh strainers in them too absolutely yeah okay. nice, a nice serviceable one yeah 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 we, probably we, if, if i spend 10 minutes i could probably find one in one of the milk crates behind me here in the basement but <laughs> yeah it's uh that's amazing um the, the other good thing Michael, if you, if you notice like a lot of ball valves, like especially on the high pressure side, not sealing after like a year or two. I have seen it a bit, yeah. Yeah, we, we've run into that uh, lately, like go to pump a rack down or go to do something and uh, can't get it below 75, 80 pounds is weeping through. Mm-hmm. Seems to be a, a, like, I mean, these, these racks are all like two years old, three years old. I mean, it seems kind of crazy to me that all these ball valves weep through that bed. So what do you guys do in that situation? Um, well, I know one for sure that we had to repair. Um, we, we basically had to, we had to dump the full charge and um, had the new valve. I, I, I think actually, I think, yeah, I think I ordered the valve and we just had a valve. I, I wasn't on the job, but uh, um, we had a, a, it was hand tigged in and basically it's just the mechanical process of dumping a charge taking in a valve and recharging the system all without all with the manager on your back saying is it ready yet is it ready yet so not fun but uh you know it got through it but that's you know it's the process of getting there is is uh it's it's no different than i guess any other system because it so was not, uh, are you guys dumping the charge or are you pushing it into vessel? that one if I recall with that one, we could, uh, there was some of it saved and, and sitting, we had to dump the condenser, pretty much dump the condenser actually come to think of it now. We're able to keep what was in the receiver. It did have a backup unit. We were able to keep the pressures down that way. And then of course, you know, all your freezers and your coolers, you know, at that point are, they're, they're, they're what's keeping your CO2 from relieving. So, um, you know, a full grocery store is a lot easier to service than an empty one on startup. If you, you know, a, 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 that's, you know, you get relieving and a lot of issues when you're starting up because you have no, no cold bank or frozen food to keep your stuff cold in the, in the case of an emergency. But that's, uh, that's just uh, basic science, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I really wish the backup units to get pushed a little more. I mean, uh, I see my first two stores of them this year. That was a, that was it. Before that, it's just been no backup units, and 
And then we get the uh, venting all summer long. Mm -hmm. But I guess, you know, the backup units are, they're just going to slow the venting. They're not going to prevent it. Correct. And depends on when you, when you crash and stop or when the system stops it, it could relief anyways, because the backup is just, it's just a help or deter. It's not going to prevent, it's going to help. So, and that, that's why some, some, you know, customers who buy the equipment, they, depending on where they're at, they're, they're, or where they're located, they're not, they, they're not going to invest into a backup unit and a generator and all this stuff for, for, for just the sake of CO2, because what's the alternative is just relieving CO2 and the cost of CO2 or is not that much. The cost of having CO2 on site can cost, can add up over, over time. But, uh, um, you know, in sites where CO, in, in cities or towns where CO2 is readily available, it's the, the amount of times that, uh, um, a backup generator or, or, or a, um, or a, a unit is, is required, uh, you know, may not be that, may not be required, may, may, may not be that necessary. Now I know locally here it's, it's, it's in a code. I'm pretty sure it's mandatory. You've got to have one. It's just, that's what they've written into the local refrigeration code or actually it's a national code actually. So it may be all systems in Canada require it, but you know, I not a, I don't read the code every night, so I'm. I, I'd have to determine that to see. I know there's a spot in there. They revised the code a few years ago with some CO2 specific uh, information in there, and one of those is uh, um, a CO2 backup refrigeration system or a generator. It's it's in the Canadian refrigeration code. So yeah, that, that'd be nice. Here lately, uh, last couple of weeks, we've been having uh, supply issues with CO2, which we usually don't have in Chicago. Like Chicago. We usually have no problem getting CO2, but like the last couple of times uh, I've been told, you know, five, you could have five tanks or eight tanks and that's it for like, you know, a couple of days. Wow. Yeah. It's, uh, they've been, they've been having some like severe supply issues here lately. So it's been, uh, been kind of difficult. So we've been kind of hoarding at the shop to <laughs> make sure we have some for a disaster. I think, uh, yeah, for hoarding is probably if, I wouldn't want to say the number that our company has in its possession, but it's uh, probably more than anyone in North America, probably. So, yeah. <laughs> so I have a question because Kevin and I were, were debating this last week. Um, we were trying to figure out the best pressure to basically have your backup or auxiliary unit running. Now, in some of the code, it says that the backup unit is only supposed to be powered under generator power, but that's not what I'm debating. Basically, I'm trying to figure out um, you know, if your high pressure is, you know, let's just say I was working on a cascade and the pressure is set for, we usually run the wheelhouse about 440. Um, the, uh, high side alarms out at 510, the reliefs blow out at 585. Where would you put your relief? Cause every time I call the manufacturer, they're like, well, just set it where you think it's going to go. I'm like, but I, w I, w I want to send it to spec. And he's like, no, just, just, you know, just, I'm sure you'll set it right. I'm like, but I, I want a number. So, I mean, is there any rule of thumb, like where you're supposed to be, how far away that you're supposed to be from the actual high pressure? Well, it, it, I, the, I, I kind of probably have the same approach that the tech support gave you there. Um, it, it depends on, on your system of where you, where you want it to do its job. Do you want it to come on early? Do you want it to come on 
um, prematurely? Do you want to come on when there is a problem? Do you want to come on when there's not a problem? So use those things to dis- decide it. So if, if you had it set for 500 PSI, you know, that, that, that thing might short cycle if you're, if you're running stressed or if you got a compressor down or something like that, which isn't the end of the world, but uh, you definitely probably want it at your alarm. If you're, if you're alarming at high pressure, you probably want that on. So, you know, and the other part about that is it, if it's, depending on the control for, for the, uh, the backup unit, you'd probably want to have a, you know, a minimum on time. Um, uh, so if it, if it, you know, you, you wouldn't want it bouncing on and off, which I I've seen that before as well. Um, just, and that again, an oversight on a, on a new, you know, you know, the, you know, that on a, on a startup when you've, you know, the startup guys that do these jobs, you know, are supermarkets, you know, they're under a lot of stress and a lot of time. So, you know, things don't always happen on day one. And, you know, that's because they've got 18, you know, that, you know, the setting of that pressure control was item 100 on their list of item number 101, right. Which they couldn't get in the first week. So they, they got to 98 in the first week. So uh, that's how things happen, which is okay. But that's how I, I've, I've noticed it before. And then, uh, when you see it, you, you want it, you don't want it to run prematurely and you don't want it to run too late. So if you're alarming it, if you're at a point where you're going to alarm, I would assume you'd want it to run and you don't, you don't want it to, to, to short, short cycle. So that's, that's kind of my take on that. And you don't want it on too late either. So I'm assuming you're dealing with a mechanical pressure switch that turns it on. Yeah. That's yeah. the, that's basically the fail safe. Yeah. So, you know, um, you know, like I said, the, the EMS is set for 510. So, I, you know, I just didn't know because each one of these that, I've, that we've taken over for warranty basically has been the compressor has been smoked. Whether the discharge check valve has failed because of short cycling, um, you know, whether they couldn't, you know, more than likely they couldn't get the, you know, the cascade pressure down. So they're like, well, we'll just turn down the pressure switch and just let it run. You know, they think they had it set for one point at, and I think it was um, 330 PSI, which is way too low for that system. You know what I mean? So you're basically, you know. Yep, I think he muted himself. <laughs> yeah. So I no, I think I, I know what, what he was saying there. He basically having a system too low. And at that point, your backup unit becomes part of your refrigeration system. So that's not what you want it to do either because it's not designed for that. It's not, uh, you know, I don't think it depends on where that's running. It's not going to, you know, again, that's like any other single refrigeration system. It's got to be, you know, working too low. It'll either be smoked with low, uh, it could start to flood, it could, you know, depends on how that backup unit is set or commissioned and how it's working. You, you definitely don't want it to be running constantly or s- short cycling. So in, with that in mind, that's where you're going to want to keep your, uh, your focus on your, your cut in point that with the mechanical control. Sorry, technical difficulties. I, uh, I don't get nice hotels like Kevin. So um, basically uh, I, I think I just touched the, uh, the outlet with my foot and I just shut down all my equipment. <laughs> that's all right you're back did you hear hear what i said yes yes oh, yes okay. all right so i was kind of thinking that's probably where you're going with the with the with your your with the low pressure operation that so and again you know like anything when it comes to that type of system whether the oem designed some sort of fail safe or monitoring at that point it's it's always nice to 
to have some sort of input digital or analog or some sort of current sensing of that unit. So, you know, if you have that system running, you know, for, for even a, a proof run, if that, if that, if you have a 10 minute or a five minute proof run on your aux, auxiliary unit, like it should trigger an alarm. And if it's triggering an alarm when you're in an emergency situation, who cares? It's when it, you want it. If it triggers an alarm when everything's running normal, that's when it can come up. So that's, uh, you know, just adding adding to whatever controller you have to to prevent that, or or you know, even a, a uh, some sort of uh, you know monitoring point to monitor its operation. So to tweak it. So that's uh, always something. Well, that's where the confusion lies, because, I mean, you know, they're they're telling me that this thing, like, per the prints, it says that it's supposed to have its own generator. So, technically, it shouldn't be running right now, but it is running. Well, yeah, typically, it's on a transfer switch, though. It'll be on, it will be on a generator. Mm -hmm. That generator, it's, it's probably on a panel that's uh, on, it's on grid power. It's on your normal supply power, but when the power goes out, there'll be a transfer switch that will energize another panel and that that gen that 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 compressor would be on that panel so it's it's so powered with the fail, whether you have a failure on the generator or, or you know where you have to switch generator power or you have a failure for whatever what if it needs it it's, it's going to be on yeah 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 well so the generator is not going to run unless there's a power outage period, yeah. right and yeah. a lot of the time you know depending on again that's the building code like a lot of times you'll have a, you know, depend on where your, your construction building call you, what a, a common name is a life safety generator. So, you know, you'll have a generator in the building. It would do certain lights. It would do certain, maybe the computer or a server or phone lines and, and different loads, electrical loads in the building would be on this life safety panel. And when that, uh, um, it, it could be uh, running on that, or it, it could be a shared shared load on that generator it could be a specific generator just for the 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 uh the the for that generator alone or for duration purposes i've seen both um that generator used as a, a transfer switch and on the transfer switch i think you get um you get the controller power control circuit power the computer power um some uh some control board like remote control board power so you you it no in in the event of a power outage, you still get your computer, you still get your control circuit, you'll get your generator and your backup units, so you can continue to log and service things or dial in and, and look at that. So, and then I I've known for some that are on a life safety generator, so you know you'll have a a fifty or hundred kilowatt generator in the, in the store that does the lights or an elevator or whatever for for the store, and then that uh, ten or twenty kilowatt load for the backup unit would be on that generator. So. That that's all depend on the, the architect or the or sorry the electrical engineer how they design the building and and the local codes. So when it gets into that, you you do get into every jurisdiction may have different rules. So gotcha. mm -hmm. well, Mike, on that note, I'm I, listen. I I can't appreciate you enough to be on here. I I really appreciate you taking the time to come out and and, and you know be on tonight. It really means a lot, man. Yeah, no problem. I mean, we really appreciate you uh, going through all this stuff with us and uh, hope to get you on again sometime soon. Yeah, for sure. Hey. All right, guys. Have a nice night. Thanks for listening. Thanks again, Mike. All right. Cheers.